if you have a large market share and you don't face a lot of competition, you have less of an incentive to keep prices low or update your technology and provide the cutting edge service. And some critics have said that that is what Ticketmaster has fallen down in these regards because there wasn't enough competition in the marketplace. Welcome to the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white-collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back with another episode. I'm thrilled today to have back with me Philip Giordano, partner at Hughes Hubbard. And as we were saying a little before we recorded, rarely do we have the intersection of hop culture, social awareness, and and I trust. So we do today. And that, of course, is the holy triumvirate of antitrust enforcement, Taylor Swift, and Live Nation. So Philip, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks for having me on the show, Tom. Philip, could you tell our audiences your current practice at Hughes Hubbard? Sure. I'm an antitrust specialist, and I defend clients who are being investigated by the Department of Justice, whether it's a merger investigation, a price-fixing investigation, a criminal nature, or civil conduct investigations. And I also handle private litigation. Philip, last week, Live Nation announced the sale of tickets to a 2023 nationwide tour by Taylor Swift. The announcement was given to 1.5 million people who had either become part of her fan club or were otherwise had registered to receive early notification of her ticket sales. The website opened on a Wednesday. It was going to open to the general public on a Friday. Over 3 million requests for tickets came in the first day. It crashed the website and there was a huge uproar because before it crashed, with algorithms that Live Nations uses, ticket prices skyrocketed into four and sometimes five figures. So there was a huge news story about this. Taylor Swift is a multi-talented, multi-awarded singer. But there's another series of issues and set of issues that you've been following actually for quite some time because Live Nation and Ticketmaster have been on the DOJ's radar for quite some time. So could I maybe start with what is Live Nation and who owns it? Sure. So Live Nation Entertainment is a public conglomerate headquartered and located in the United States and is composed of basically two parts. One is Live Nation itself, which is a artist representative, a live event promoter, and even a venue owner. The other side is Ticketmaster, once an independent company, now merged with Live Nation to form Live Nation Entertainment in 2010. And Ticketmaster is a primary 
ticketing agent for live events. And that typically is concert events, but also, you know, sporting events. And so the two together are, an antitrust attorney thinks of as a vertically integrated company that offers services across sort of a whole stack within the industry. Could you really articulate a little bit more about the term vertical integration and maybe explain how that differs from horizontal integration and how the DOJ viewed things in 2010 and perhaps how that may have evolved into 2022? Sure. So vertical integration, you know, an economist will tell you is when you integrate upstream or downstream, you know, a manufacturer buys a supplier, for example, or that's upstream or downstream, they buy a distributor to distribute their products. And in a vertical situation, you know, they don't really compete. They work together. In contrast to a horizontal merger, which is among entities that compete with each other. So two car manufacturers selling in the United States, competitors. And if they were to merge, that would be considered a horizontal merger. And horizontal mergers typically raise um, antitrust issues because they can result in a concentrated market that is less competitive and can result in higher prices for consumers or less available products and things along those natures. Now, in 2010, when Live Nation and Ticketmaster proposed their merger, there was a little bit of both, primarily a vertical transaction because Live Nation was doing what it does now, which is concert promotion, event promotion, and, and owning venues and representing artists. It wasn't in, in primary ticketing, which is you know the first sale of the ticket as opposed to an aftermarket where people might sell a ticket they already own. But you know, one of the things that DOJ was concerned about back then was that there wasn't a lot of competition in the primary ticketing market. Ticketmaster then as now you know, had, had a very substantial market share, according to the DOJ's lights. It viewed Live Nation as a potential entrant into the primary ticketing market. If anybody could get in, it would be sort of a large concert promoter that could you know, bring in a lot of venues into its ticketing service. And for that reason, the DOJ conducted an in-depth investigation in the antitrust world is called a second request and did a deep dive into what the implications of the merger were going to be for competition in primary ticketing. And what they concluded was that there were some problems that they thought that they could address. They could let the deal go through. They didn't have to block the deal, but they wanted some assurances to preserve competition in the primary ticketing market. And what they asked Ticketmaster to do was to spin out and license out its, its platform software, its ticketing software to a major competitor so that there would be somebody else entering the market, since clearly Life Nation would not be. They required Ticketmaster to spin out a white label subsidiary that provided primary ticketing services on a white label basis to other companies. And they imposed some behavioral restrictions. The primary one was that Ticketmaster and Live Nation would agree not to retaliate against venues that didn't use Ticketmaster's primary ticketing service. So if they went with AEG, which was the buyer of the software license, that and didn't use Ticketmaster, that this new entity, Live Nation Entertainment, the vertically integrated entity, wouldn't say, well, you're not using my ticketing, so I'm not going to promote shows to you. I'm going to withhold big acts from your venue because you're not also working with me on ticketing. So the 
process goes through, the concerns by the DOJ were noted, some concessions were made, and how typically does such an agreement end up? Is there a formal agreement? Is there a link to that agreement? Is there monitoring or oversight over that agreement? How does that part of antitrust, I don't want to say enforcement, but antitrust practice work? Yeah. From the DOJ's perspective, I think that they would call it enforcement. So the process involves bringing a complaint by the DOJ. In this case, it was the district court in the Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia, bringing a complaint saying, you know, we have a problem with this merger and it simultaneously filing a proposed consent decree or final judgment, which would lay out the terms that I just was you know, discussing about conceptually about what would be licensed and what would be spun out and the behavioral restrictions and prohibitions that would be placed on the merged entity. That would be then be reviewed by the court and approved by the court and entered as a judgment by the court and therefore become an enforceable ruling by the court that if violated, the, the DOJ could go back to the court and assert that the court's order had been violated and proceed accordingly. In 2010, the consent decree was set to last 10 years. And sometimes a consent decree will have a monitor, third-party monitor you know, appointed. Sometimes it's not necessary. Sometimes the consent decree will have reporting requirements where the, the merge entity has to report to the court and to the DOJ about its activities, sometimes on an annual basis. Sometimes it has internal compliance, a training requirements, and those kinds of things. It depends on the circumstances. So we have a consent decree, an enforceable order issued by district court, and it had a 10-year term, so 2010 to 2020 obviously far before the events of last week. Was that agreement extended in any way? And if so, what were the concerns of the DOJ that led to the extension? So what happened was that there were some complaints from venues of retaliation, despite the consent decree. And the DOJ opened an investigation to determine, you know, what the facts were on the ground. There's always, you know, two sides to any story. And decided that in order to resolve these concerns, that they needed to extend the consent decree. And eventually the Live Nation Entertainment, the merge entity, agreed to a five and a half year extension that will expire at the end of 2025. So all the same terms of the and the prohibitions of the consent decree, but there was also some terms that expanded on the prohibitions. Originally, the consent decree specified that their retaliation generally would be prohibited, and retaliation in two specific ways would be prohibited. The extension added a third prohibition in terms of retaliation that Ticketmaster Live Nation would not retaliate against a venue by withholding you know, a major artist's performance. So that was added as part of this extension. And then the, the other major change was they felt that a monitor was going to be necessary. They imposed a requirement that they find a third-party monitor that would follow LNE's day-to-day activities to make sure that there was retaliation was not an issue. And so that's what, what is, has been in place now. And that was put in place the very end of 2019 very beginning of 2020, before the Taylor Swift incident. 
You mentioned near the start of our podcast today that Live Nation also has a business unit that manages some 450 artists. Were there any concerns or even allegations that those artists received undue favor as opposed to artists managed by other talent agencies? As an artist manager, Live Nation will represent those artists, will put together tours for these artists, will help them price their tickets, will help them decide which venues and which cities the artist is going to perform for a particular tour. And in managing that process, you know, the artist can benefit from Ticketmaster's ownership of certain venues and relationships with other venues for which it has contracts for primary ticketing services. So Live Nation Entertainment is, because it's vertically integrated, can offer this broad range of services to the artists that it represents. So now we have Taylor Swift, and we now have the Taylor Swift debacle. How, if at all, did that incident or series of events tie into the antitrust issues we've been discussing? Was it separate and apart, or was it just brought in really an unwanted spotlight on Live Nation when they may have other legal issues that they're currently dealing with? I think the fallout from the the Taylor Swift incident is still playing out. Senator Klobuchar has been in the press talking about opening a congressional investigation into Ticketmaster's Live Nation Entertainment's practices. There are a couple of state attorney generals that are investigating, and the DOJ has been reported to have opened an investigation into Ticketmaster's practices. You have to recognize that the issues that arose with Taylor Swift, which was primarily that the site crashed, they didn't have the technology in place to scale up, and that some people weren't able to buy tickets at all. Other people were being offered tickets at these very extraordinary prices. Those weren't really the issues had led to the consent decree in the first place. It was really questions about retaliation. I think that people generally recognize that, and certainly critics have accused Ticketmaster of if you have a large market share and you don't face a lot of competition, you have less of an incentive to keep prices low or update your technology and provide the cutting edge service. And some critics have said that that is what Ticketmaster has fallen down in these regards because there wasn't enough competition in the marketplace. Well, that leads to the question of, well, what is the DOJ's role when faced with a market that's somewhat concentrated? And part of the question is, well, why is it concentrated? You have to sort of get to the bottom of that. Is it concentrated because they let a merger go through that maybe shouldn't have gone through? Or is it concentrated for other reasons? I mean, markets can be concentrated because there are network effects where it pays to have a lot of bands that you're selling tickets for, which brings in a lot of fans who want to buy those tickets, which brings in more bands because that's where the fans are. That kind of self-reinforcing virtuous cycle can exist in a lot of different online marketplaces and to some degree exists in Ticketmaster's marketplace. And when you look at it from that perspective, whether or not they had let the merger go through back in 2010 isn't really relevant to the fact that you've got some pretty substantial network effects in the primary ticketing market that are going to be there no matter what the DOJ does. So I'm a consumer. Occasionally, I have to go to Ticketmaster or Live Nation. Occasionally, I buy on the secondary market. As a consumer, I am generally frustrated in two areas. One is cost, not necessarily the cost of the tickets, but 
the cost of the service fee, which can be sometimes nearly the price of a ticket. I'm not quite sure what the service fee covers. I'm not going to receive a hard copy ticket mailed to me. I'm not even going to will call. I'm receiving electronic ticket. I've always wondered about that. And then the second that I think we saw in the Taylor Swift debacle was essentially surge pricing made popular or at least knowledgeable by Uber when the need for the service would surge, the price went up. And that seemed to be happening at least anecdotally in the Taylor Swift debacle. As a consumer, am I on the radar of the DOJ for these concerns beyond simply the not investing in technology or other areas that you've already uh, articulated? I think that's part of the mix. You know, an economist will tell you that surge pricing, for example, in the case of Uber, is a good way for a market to function competitively because as prices go up, the Uber drivers realize that there's an opportunity to make more money. And so they get in their cars and provide more Uber services. And that happens because the price rises. So the price is a signal to the market, like we need more of whatever it is people are looking for here. In this case, you know, rides. Surge pricing is trickier in the concert going marketplace. Just because prices go up doesn't mean that more tickets or more seats suddenly become available. Perhaps, but it's not on a one-by-one basis. You know, in order to make more tickets available or more seats available, Taylor Swift would have to add an additional concert. She's going to do three concerts in New York. Well, she'd have to add add a fourth concert or a fifth concert. That is sort of chunkier. So, you know, it happens in bigger pieces and that can be an impediment to bringing prices down. But also like Taylor Swift can only do so many concerts in a week and somebody can't step in and provide Taylor Swift concerts instead of Taylor Swift. So there's inherently a limit in terms of how many seats are going to be available, no matter you know what the price is going to be. So surge pricing in one market can help the market function competitively. In another market, in primary ticketing, can really be a source of frustration. Now, that's the price of the ticket. The other part of your question was about the fee that Ticketmaster charges for the service of providing tickets online, which I think they call their convenience fee. A source of endless frustration, I think, for a lot of fans and concert goers because it does seem like it can be substantial. Keep in mind that while tickets, you know, it seems like an easy thing to provide, it does require investment in a lot of technology, but also in a lot of relationships. You have to bring all those artists into the platform. You you have to go out and sell your ticketing platform to venues. You have to establish these relationships. So while to the consumer, Ticketing services kind of seems like they're not really doing anything except handing you a ticket and sending you a, something on your cell phone. There's actually a lot going on in terms of that technology that, you know, the cost of which they have to cover. Many years ago, I worked in the oil field service industry as an in-house counsel, and our company was large enough that we had our own dedicated antitrust counsel. And they would come around and give us lectures and other antitrust training. And one of the things that struck me and stuck with me was something called a 70% rule. And really wasn't a hard or fast rule, but it was something along the lines of if one entity controls 70% of the market, that was about the top end the DOJ would allow before they started looking with the antitrust eye. So when it got to 60 to 70%, this guy wanted to know, and he would start talking to the 
executives of that business unit. My business unit was a software company. Was there ever such a thing as a 70% rule? If there was, does it still exist? And do companies need to be cognizant if they really are the biggest player in a particular market? Yeah, I think companies do have to be cognizant if they're the largest player in a market, particularly if they're over 50%. I think the 70% is probably high, particularly given the Biden administration's pretty aggressive antitrust enforcement posture. They've been going after consummated deals and and talking about unwinding acquisitions for the first time in, in a generation or more. The Biden administration has appointed some very aggressive leaders to the FTC and the DOJ to carry out their agenda. I don't think they're going to wait till a concentration gets to 70% before they would take an interest in the market. But you have to also recognize that under the antitrust laws, being large in and of itself is not unlawful. If you obtain a large share of the market, it can be because you have a great product, you are a first mover, you keep ahead of the market and imitators. It could be because you're providing great services to your customers. And the DOJ isn't going to take issue with a company simply because they're large, simply because they have a large share of the market, because that in itself does not necessarily indicate that they're behaving in a competitive manner. Antitrust tends to deal more with, first of all, preventing companies from merging in order to get that kind of market share. That's one thing. The other thing it tends to deal with is companies that once they have a large market share, exploiting it in order to preserve their market share. And the classic case is the Microsoft case, where Microsoft was accused of choking off the air supply of Netscape, the first big browser company, because Netscape threatened its operating system dominance. They weren't going after Microsoft because the operating system was slow or pricey. They were going after Microsoft because they felt that it was doing things to cut Netscape off from the market. And it's that kind of conduct the the antitrust laws are designed to attack. So Philip, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but it's really been a fascinating masterclass for me in current events and antitrust law. I really have enjoyed myself. I have two criteria for a great podcast. Number one, how much did I learn? Number two, how much fun did I have? And I scored 11 on both. I hope current events will give us another opportunity for you to come back and join us. Well, I'll see you at the next concert, Tom.